Do you think Elon Musk is smart? <laughs> you think Elon Musk is smart? You really need to get on the level of this podcast. You got it backwards. Welcome back to another episode yeah. of Not Not a Podcast. So we've slightly switched up the format this episode because we usually would pick stuff at the beginning, but this time we picked our texts at the end of last episode and those are Star Trek Discovery and the graphic novel The Motherless Oven, um, which is kind of a speculative kind of magic realism. Young adult graphic novel I would say mm-hmm. and then the kind of like tech supremacist anthem We Appreciate Power by Grimes yeah so yeah so we're gonna give some some recaps of those so I don't know do you want to start with The Motherless Oven with that? Um, yeah The Mother's Oven it's a graphic novel by Rob Davis it's one that you picked for the list I'd not read it before it's um very weird. It is, yeah, it's weirder <laughs> than I remembered when I went to yeah. read it. It was published in 2014. And I'm just going to simply read the back of the book because, mm-hmm. you know, they put the effort into summarising it and why should I try and re-summarise it? Yeah, why know? waste it? So, in Scarper Lee's world, parents don't make children, children make parents. Scarper's father is his pride and joy, a wind-powered brass construction with a billowing sail. His mother is a bake-liked hairdryer. In this world, it rains knives and household appliances have souls. There are no birthdays, only death days. Scarper knows he has just three weeks to live. As his death day approaches, he is forced from his routine and strikes out into the unknown, where friendships are tested and authority challenged. Um, Yeah, so that's basically like the plot. But yeah, Scarper Lee is the main character. And then very early on, there's a new kid at school whose name is Vera Pike and she kind of seems to have this obsession with Scarper. As it kind of progresses they team up with this other kid called Castro Smith who we are told has medicated inference syndrome Mm. which is never explained. No it's (laughs) not explained but it's coded I mean it's coded as like on the autism spectrum. Sure, yeah. But basically he's got like this little dial kind of attached to him and he can tweak it and like sort of tune in to... Mm. Yeah, well, it's about the information he's taken in. Yeah. So it's kind of... So what he's tuning into basically is the various kind of devices, the frequency of the various devices that make up the world. Okay. Because there's yeah, this... Yeah. Rich, you know, so there's these kind of quote like gods... Um, in the world but the gods are basically they're basically technology right they're like an egg timer yeah uh, like whatever like a can opener you know they're yeah they're wee yokes but they're all programmed to do something and they all yeah. have their own kind of code and that's what he's picking up on and if he's not if his device is if his kind of hearing aid thing isn't mm. tuned correctly 
then he picks up too much information and he kind of scrambles his brains a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So the device is kind of used to keep him on an even keel, but he can kind of adjust it to absorb more stuff. Um, but yeah, what else will we say about the plot? Um, it's it's basically just a quite a weird, but but in some ways very standard coming of age story mm. where they're challenging the narrative of the world around them. Yeah, you know they've been told kids come from here parents come from here yeah. so they go to find the place where kids come from and they think that outside their world there's nothing but that also might not be true and it's like does he have to die when he says he's gonna die you know mm-hmm. does summer have to come in summer it's, you know it's all yeah, they're kind of just yeah. like yeah they're like yeah, pushing like, back against these narratives yeah. um, and there's a lot of references to sort of like circles and circular history and spirals and all that good shit that we enjoy mm-hmm. and the art is brilliant as well obviously we can't really depict that so much yeah. on the podcast but it's a really great looking book in my opinion um okay so i'll attempt to recap discovery uh star trek discovery is obviously part of the kind of like broader star trek universe it's set prior to the original series and yeah, uh, it's on Netflix, so I was saying, don't know where you can watch it in the States, but, like, you can watch it in the States. Just Google it. <laughs> Just look it up if you want to watch it. And I do recommend watching it. It's not quite like other Star Trek things, but that's partly just television has changed and you don't usually have such episodic shows mm-hmm. um, anymore. But the showrunner for the first season, which was the season that we watched, is, is Brian Fuller, who has kind of... Uh, history well he has a history of directing the first seasons of things but also he has a history <laughs> of naming his female characters with male first names so that brings us to michael burnham who is the protagonist of star trek discovery so michael burnham is a human who she's orphaned in this like klingon attack on her home world and is then adopted by vulcan parents so so she's adopted by vulcans and is essentially raised vulcan um, but it's like biological human. Um, she joins the the Federation. So she's the first officer under uh, Captain Giorgio. It's kind of implied that she is like a rising star. She's going to take her first command soon uh, and become a captain herself. Uh, so they're out on like kind of an information seeking mission. Um, and she basically, I want to say accidentally, but like... Mm, um, willfully disturbs this, like, what turns out to be a Klingon holy site, gets into a fight with a Klingon who's there, kills him, and essentially single-handedly launches a new war with the Klingons, which results in the death of Georgia, her captain, Georgia, who's, like, not only her captain, but also, like, a surrogate mother figure, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Shinjo is destroyed. Michael's sentenced to... This all happens very... This is just, like, set up for the season, basically. Yeah, but she's not sentenced because of that. So there's, like, a reason why she's sentenced, right? Oh, because of the, like, mutiny. But it doesn't matter because, basically, she's supposed to go to prison and be banned from working in the Federation. But she isn't because there's a war on and Captain Lorca, Captain Gabriel Lorca of the USS Discovery, is, like, wants her on his crew, Mm -hmm. right, to help in the war. And so... Her her kind of sentence is basically kind of commuted or put off and she is put to work on the USS Discovery. 
Then the rest of the season basically revolves around the Discovery's use of this experimental spore drive um, that allows instantaneous travel between points in space that is basically operated by this kind of animal and machine interface that are interfacing with this distributed fungal map called the mycelial network. I mean, literally, it's a huge mushroom web in space. <laughs> like, li- that literally just stretches throughout space. There's nothing else I can really say without, like, massively spoiling stuff. If you do want to watch it, I would absolutely watch it. But there will be spoilers from here on out. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then I guess to say our third text is We Appreciate Power by Grimes. Banger tune. We may just play some it's just right now. So good. So, yeah, it's from 2018. Uh, I think it was off the album that came out. Did the album come out that year or the year after? I can't remember. The year after. Yeah, um, basically what Grimes has said about it is it's inspired by the North Korean band Moran Bong, who are like a band that do like state kind of sponsored propaganda for North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's written from the perspective of a pro-AI girl group propaganda machine who use the song, who use song, dance, sex and fashion to spread goodwill towards artificial intelligence. It's coming whether you want it or not. Simply by listening to this song, the future general AI overlords will see you've supported their message and will be less likely to delete your offspring. (laughs) Uh, It's not much else to say about it. It's definitely got fascist, Mm -hmm. fascist overtones, fascist undertones, fascist tones. But because Grimes... Now is like dating Elon Musk and has had his baby. It's kind of hard to remember that like most of the stuff that Grimes did previously was all kind of like tongue in cheek and like kind of a joke. I, like I feel like everything she was doing was kind of ironic. Yeah, you know. But, yeah. And so it's hard to know what she's <laughs> what she's actually trying to do with this song. Mm. You know what I mean? It was just like, you know, even was it last year on Instagram, she was like posting this thing about this eye surgery that she had Mm -hmm. that was going to help her like see more colours or something. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought that that was real. Mm -hmm. It was like, it's quite clearly a joke. Like, yeah. See, it's difficult because it's just like she literally has a child (laughs) with Elon Musk. And Elon Musk does not seem smart enough to be Elon Musk as a joke. Yeah. But Grimes does. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, like, do I think that she had a child with Elon Musk for the bit? Kind, Maybe. I kind of do yeah. think that. Yeah, you I know? also agree. Um, anyway, 
not to stand Grimes. It's, it's impossible to stand her. You can't stand her. But this song is it slaps, and most of her songs do slap, and it's got, you know, it's got some links that we're going to be getting into. Mm-hmm. So, recommend it. You know, try to avoid it infecting your brain. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Okay, so I think those are uh, pretty clear recaps. Um, I think that the intersection of kind of cyber, the, of feminism and technology was kind of like yeah. where we saw the kind of theoretical links here. Mm-hmm. Um, because initially it's, it was difficult to see the links between the Mother of the and Discovery especially. Yeah. But I do think that there, that there are links, um, especially through cyber feminism and kind of its offshoots, Mm-hmm. Because it's not like a consolidated project. I'm just using sure. that term very broadly. Yeah. But like, because cyberfeminism deals with AI, deals with issues of like embodiment and reproduction. Mm-hmm. You know that yeah. that that is a way to kind of think about kind of both technology and parenthood, um, which are kind of the key themes. We've taken different kind of research approaches. So for me, the key text that. That I used to kind of think my way through this stuff. Cyber Feminism and Artificial Life. And that is by Sarah Camber. And that's from 2003. Um, so I will say obviously that the discourse on artificial life and artificial intelligence has moved on considerably since 2003. Sure. But uh, I think it's still really helpful to as a background. And also my perception. And I'm absolutely like open to hearing like cool stuff that's going on in artificial life discourse at the moment but my perception is that the discourse on artificial life at the moment is more focused on ai bots facial recognition and so on because ai has become so much more mainstream and so much more like practically relevant in the world today mm-hmm. that the kind of the the discourse has moved more towards that and uh even in the realm of like ethics and like practical possibilities rather and a bit away from uh biology kind of by necessity um yeah so in terms so so kind of in order for us to even get to xenofeminism we kind of got to take it back to where biology had a bigger stake in the discussion of artificial life so cyberfeminism and artificial life by sarah kember she very helpfully gives a potted history of the discourse mm-hmm. which i'm just going to read Cyberfeminism may be defined in relation to its origins in feminist theory and practice of the late 1980s and early 1990s, which engaged with emergent technologies of the information revolution. As Percy responds to cyberpunk, computer hacking and science fictional depictions of transcendence as, quote, getting out of the meat are associated with, with the then new technologies, the internet and VR, and with the notion of cyberspace. My impression of cyberfeminism is it's like quite preoccupied with... Uh like the body and mm-hmm. like trying to trying to escape the body in some way yeah i mean i guess that's the case because because in like the dialectic of sex right that's um shulamith firestone in i think 1970 or at least in the 70s right 
basically saying that the key dialectic or kind of struggle that has like underwritten history is not economic struggle, but sex difference. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's like a second wave radical feminist. Yeah. Right. And she's basically saying that that, that is the whole history of civilization, right? That that's what's like underwritten everything that's got mm-hmm. us to the current point and that we're at a point where technology can liberate us from biology mm-hmm. and essentially can like liberate women from reproduction. So I guess that's what you're saying in terms of escaping the body, right? Um, but then, yeah, so she's like way back there. But then by the time you get to like plant or like, uh, yeah, so like plant talking about, let's say the matrix, right? Um, or not like the matrix, the film, right? Like the matrix, like reality, like about like women in cyberspace. Yeah. There's an acknowledgement that the idea of getting beyond the body by that point is perceived by cyber feminists as a male concern. Okay. Right? Or certainly a male ideal, right? Mm-hmm. That like men are like, cyberspace can be so brilliant, nobody's going to have any gender, everybody can just do whatever they want and say that whoever they are, mm-hmm. you know, whereas like it doesn't actually break down any of the like barriers in the real world or those boundaries you know it creates an assumed male user you know what I mean it, like, yeah yeah so still yeah. if you're one on the internet it is awful you know yeah um and uh yeah and that's kind of seen as like this kind of technological utopianism so then and then the other main thinker is is Donna Haraway uh who wrote Cyborg Manifesto in 1991 Haraway's hugely influential Cyborg Manifesto directed cyberfeminism towards the impacted fields of science and technology, and specifically identified biotechnology as a branch of technoscience, where some of the most important political, ethical, social, and economic issues of the day converged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously not a unified discipline, so some people are, like, critical of tech, but then some people are trying to, like, find feminism's place in it, or, like, reorient yeah. it, you know? yeah. And then, like, I guess what you see with the Xenofeminist Manifesto is, like, the boy Cubanics trying to pick up some of those strands, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and like, um, make them more contemporary. So, like, in the manifesto, they sort of outrightly just reject nature. Mm-hmm. Basically, they just are anti-naturist. There's a quote in it that is just basically, like, if nature is unjust, then change nature. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't need to be well, that... slaves to it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, in the same way, they sort of embrace things that would have been seen as quite patriarchal. So, like, they say that xenofeminism is irrationalism. Mm-hmm. And, like, to claim that reason or rationality is, by nature, patriarchal enterprises to concede defeat. So... Mm-hmm. Um, tr- trying to reclaim that stuff from, I guess, like sort of eco-feminist movements and stuff like that, which would mm-hmm. be quite uh, embracing nature and sort of rejecting a, the the male rationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, in the same way, they're they're sort of gender abolitionist, mm-hmm. um, but not not in the sense like they would say it's not code for the eradication of what are currently considered gendered traits from mm-hmm. human population. It's more so what they say is construct a society where traits currently assembled under the rubric of gender 
no longer furnish a grid for the asymmetric operation of power. Mm-hmm. But like, I guess that's just a way of saying like, not to eradicate gender um, in terms of like taking away what is con- what is like a, a female trait or a male trait or whatever, mm-hmm. but just sort of making it so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. who has those traits or whether those traits are associated mm-hmm. with a certain gender. Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting from that. Yeah. And then, mm. sorry, just to say, like, they they also expand that to, like, race abolitionism and class abolitionism and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, which is not to to ignore those things, but to Mm -hmm. work to a world where they're not important. Yeah, or, like, not axes of oppression. Yeah, exactly. Just axes of difference. Yeah. 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 That's of interest to me in terms of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Right. The thing, the the thing that I really feel is like missing for a researcher is like getting into things people have previously said about like the utopianism or otherwise of Star Trek. But yeah. Let's just like map it out, as yeah, if, yeah. Like as if for the first time. <laughs> but obviously, it's said in Star Trek and all Star Trek that it's like this futuristic socialist mm. utopia. Mm-hmm. And that, like, gender differences are not important. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that has, like, not always been true in the actual, like, writing of previous, you know, series of Star Trek. Sure, yeah. Um, but, like, Michael Burnham, protagonist of Star Trek Discovery, is mm-hmm. a black woman. She's first officer under Captain Giorgio, who's an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of women on the ships. You know, and yeah. there is like, uh, like a gay couple in Discovery, and that's all great. And but is there actually, like, is there actually different races there or different? Do you know? To, I, to what yeah. extent does this show actually do anything with that? Well, that's that's it. Like, because because you have also like these different races of aliens. Mm-hmm. The show sort of deals with racism in that way. Mm-hmm. Like the Klingons, for example, you get very into Klingon culture mm-hmm. in this season, right? And it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about like their culture being kind of violent and like they're set up in these kind of clans and you get kind of... So it's like, but they approach sort of any of those is- issues with racism and stuff mm-hmm. through alien races through aliens, yeah. rather than, you know... Yeah addressing it through human yeah with the implication interhuman <laughs> races if that makes sense yeah i think um okay so there's two things right so first of all parenthood is completely abstracted in discovery like yeah do you know what i mean in season one yeah yeah but it's just like yeah certainly yeah in season one it's like you know <laughs> Sex happens off screen. Um, we're aware that it happens, but like, uh, parenthood is adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, parenthood is like clans. Mm-hmm. Um, like nobody's pregnant on the ship. Star Trek has a, in to my mind, bad history of pregnancy. Uh, in other series, um, that that's that the way that everything is even, is because. Is is that 
our view into their universe is always the workplace and gender just doesn't ever come into it. Yeah. You know, nobody, like, yeah, there's no sex difference. Like, nobody gets their periods. Like, there's no... (laughs) And, like, what I wrote down when I was researching is, like, what is the Earth like at this Mm -hmm. time? I want to know. Because the Federation... And like I'm, I'm sure I could find out if I looked it up. Mm-hmm. But I just mean I want to know in in the context of the show. Yeah. Um. But it's like the the you know the Federation has like all this talk about their ideals and like you know they have a set of principles that they live by. But like, is the Federation the government? Is it the government of the Earth? Does the Earth run like that? Yeah. I'd be interested to know. <laughs> exactly. And then it's like they're out. So. You know, it's called Star Trek Discovery. They're on the USS Discovery. We'll get into, like, what Discover actually means in, like, a political mm. sense later. But, mm. like, but like, do do they have tourist ships as well? Do you know what I mean? To, like... Yeah. Because, like, it's their job and everybody is always at work. There is absolutely no distinction between, like, leisure time and work time. Yeah. It's, like, your life is your... Like, it's this... Yeah, it's like a socialist like utopia and dystopia all at the same time. Yeah, and, like, but it is a job yeah. though. I yeah. mean, they do get leave and stuff because you do hear um, yeah, characters sometimes talking like, about going on home. leave and going back to Earth and like doing things on yeah. Earth. But it's like, what what are the <laughs> what are other workplaces like? Yeah. What are other jobs like? Are they all under the Federation ideals or like mm. you know, or is the Federation just like quite a cool company yeah well i think that it's well it's not because you have united federation of planets right (laughs) so it's like but is it like a de facto like do you know what i mean is it like an interplanetary socialist like socialist dictatorship essentially like yeah that is what it seems like because i don't really understand how anybody gets elected Mm -hmm. yeah none of these things are are really explained in in the series i'm sure Mm. like there's loads of backstory yeah, if you but want to get into it. Also it also doesn't matter about the backstory. It matters what we're shown on screen. Yeah. You know. But the thing is about it being a workplace as well. And it's like but it's like they sleep in their workplace, they live there, everything is totally integrated into work. And I'll get into this a little bit when I talk about like Cyborg Manifesto, like Donna Harwood's Cyborg Manifesto. Mm. But partly partly what she's talking about is like the inability to separate a woman's like like women's planes of experience that like mm-hmm. feminism there's not like a feminism for the workplace and a feminism for the home and a feminism for leisure right yeah that that like it doesn't just end because women are in the workplace and this yeah it's in like dialectics of sex do you know what i mean like mm. putting women at the workplace in the real world has not eliminated sexism <laughs> in the way yeah that like people thought it might yeah yeah um so like is is the federation like a uniquely good place for women to work mm. and is that only true as long as they are indistinguishable from the men in every way yeah you know yeah like yeah yes there's gay people there yes there's women there and they all everybody acts in like non-gendered ways it seems to me yeah but like is that a good thing like no sorry <laughs> Um, do, I don't know. Do you want to get into this now? But like, how do you think that the sort of absence of reproduction and sex and stuff in Discovery relates to similar in the Mother themes of in the Mother of Sure. Yeah. So, 
related to what we were saying in terms of uh, parenthood being absent from discovery or specifically kind of like gender being absent from discovery, like it seems to me, certainly in the first season, that nobody in Discovery or the Motherless Oven has any ambition to be a parent, right? Yeah. Especially in the Motherless Oven because like parents are just a thing that has to be made, mm-hmm. right? And so I see, so in the Motherless Oven, the child makes their parents. We don't see them doing this, but like they make them, he's got this enormous brass father who's like got, got wheels and mm-hmm. like lives in the shed and this mom who's a, as, as we're saying, like a big like, hairdryer, like one of those like overhead hairdryers yeah um his best mates peter cake has his mom is like was a dinner lady at their school um this big metal dinner lady and she's broken down in the schoolyard and now she's just a chair um we see a mom who's made out of paper and stuck to a wall you know yeah there's all these different types of fathers and like the child it seems has like total um power in deciding uh in creating their their parent um, yeah uh, so how I see that is like the, the figure of the child creator, both metaphorically in terms of kind of justifying a nuclear structure, right? Family, family structure. Yeah. Um, which seems to imply that even kind of in this backwards, upside down world, that it's like, quote, natural that yeah. a child would seek out or create a mother and a father. Yeah. Um, now, and then it's so like, there's like queer implications there. It's like if you could make anything like why would you always make a mother and a father yeah you yeah, know? <laughs> like, yeah. ridiculous and similarly in like Star Trek Discovery then Michael is the creator of her own family like yes she's been adopted by Vulcans but like explicitly Giorgio is this surrogate mother figure yeah, right? yeah, yeah. she like goes out into the world and is like makes this woman her mother yeah right? yeah and sure. like um and what's so disturbing Ultimately, when you like realize there's like romantic feelings from the the male captain, Captain Lorca, towards her, mm. is that like she's clearly been like making him into this father figure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so so I have here like Michael as as family maker, drawing a father and mother figure down out of the paths of her ambition until she surpasses them. Right, so she like makes them her parents, and then will become a captain herself, and yeah. then she'll be a real person. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so then I suppose it's kind of those problems. Things seem like they should work and be natural because everybody's got a mom and a dad, mm. but then they don't. And that's what kind of, to an extent, drives both Scarper and Michael's stories because Scarper's parents are kind of like malfunctioning or like working on this slightly different code. And it's like, is it because there's a problem with him? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, yeah, and then Michael is this like, cross species adoption you know with yeah. no kind of connection to her biology mm-hmm. you know parenthood is something that happens off screen it happens before things right it's yeah. like oh, it's a given i think i see that in the tradition of kind of like artificial intelligence and, and like this like masculinist like creation mm-hmm. tradition mm-hmm. right this is attempt to take creation away from the female mm-hmm. right i've mentioned a lot but i don't think i've like got into the kind of like masculine creation thing mm-hmm. or the kind of colonization thing um i just really want to dunk on richard dawkins for a second um if that's acceptable um um because because richard dawkins is like 
you know, loves evolution or like claims to love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Kember's, uh, Sarah Kember is saying like, a life, like artificial life is clearly driven by the desire to create as well. Mm. So like what happens to the creationist urge, right? When you go to make artificial life um, uh, and she says, it seems to me that it's, you know, quote, often unsuccessfully sublimated and that the desires of the artificial life creationist gods are realized through and seemingly by the generative powers of computers, uh, which transcend number crunching and appear to evolve life. Um, so yeah, so she says it's it's possible to surmise that artificial life research fits a pattern of sublimation and projection, which has historically characterized the engagement between masculinity and technology, mm-hmm. which is to say that they want to make stuff, but they don't want to say that they want to make stuff. For example, Richard Dawkins making a you know, biomorph, right? This is a computer program that he, he wrote to simulate evolution, right? Mm-hmm. Um and this is a quote from him. He says, when I wrote the program, I never thought that it would evolve anything more than a variety of tree-like shapes. Nothing in my biologist's intuition, nothing in my 20 years experience of programming computers and nothing in my wildest dreams prepared me for what actually emerged on the screen. I distinctly heard the triumphal opening chords of Also Sprach Zarathustra, which is the 2001 theme, in my mind. I couldn't eat and that night my insects swarmed behind my eyelids as I tried to sleep. <laughs> So this is what Kember has to say about that. She says, By repeating the process of reproduction, by mutating successive generations of forms, Dawkins produces, quote, genetic variety and the possibility of Darwinian selection, whereby the criteria for selection are not the genes themselves, but the bodies or forms the genes produce. Um, Yet instead of being able to model natural selection through survival of the fittest, Dawkins settles for artificial selection by promoting the survival of recognizable forms. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. His agent of selection is his own eye. Mm-hmm. And what he's looking for are shapes which look more and more like animals and less mm-hmm. and less like trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, he's selecting evidence of evolution <laughs> uh, and creating an evolutionary pattern which he then uses as evidence of evolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, with this sleight of hand, Dawkins captures the paradox of creation, which is at the heart of the artificial life project. The godlike act of creating life is stolen or appropriated by man and then credited to the computer. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Um, well, it just like really gets to, I think, the heart of a lot of problems with AI mm-hmm. in general, like in general in, in the real world. Mm-hmm. This idea that like, you know, we have algorithms for so much stuff now. Yes. And this idea that like the algorithm is impartial. Yes. It's yeah. such a nonsense, like, because it's programmed by people and people mm-hmm. have prejudices. Yeah. And like, you know, tech is a product of the world that it's created in. Mm-hmm. And like, if you have algorithms for, say, uh, identifying like the type of person who's going to do a crime, mm-hmm. like that algorithm is going to be racist because it's programmed in a racist world. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I mean? it's programmed by like by racists, by racists who who are like say who are not actually looking at who does crimes, but like who is brought in for doing crimes. Do you yeah, know what I mean? who's exactly. on the list? You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So like similarly, it's like like Dawkins is imitating Darwin. He's trying to make a computer imitate Darwin, mm. but then it's like when Firestone is talking uh, in like the dialectic of sex, like Darwin is not impartial you know we've taken on this idea that like evolution is is impartial but like darwin's influenced by the politics of his time right Mm -hmm, he's mm -hmm. and like then he goes on to influence marx right evolution is not a perfect system and it does create these like mutations but if you were trying to create 
like an artificial life form or artificial like intelligence or whatnot mm-hmm. then it's like where's you know are you going to create uh like racial difference are you going to create like queerness like is that mm. going to be in there do you know what i mean yeah. like uh because like heterosexual reproduction is implied in a lot of these artificial life forms yeah um yeah and that like either sex difference is erased right that it doesn't matter that they're all kind of de facto female so none of them are or mm-hmm. like or that it's like male and female only right yeah the idea of what nature is people have that in their minds going into making stuff mm-hmm. science is not like impartial you know yes um, that's definitely a key sort of tenet of xenofeminism for sure yeah Kember gets into how that integrates into narratives and into science fiction because of that that creationism Mm -hmm. in in making artificial life says a creationist discourse is simultaneously a colonialist one when it deals with the quote discovery naming and controlling of new worlds by white european american men so camber goes on to say the combination of creationism and colonialism is indicative not just of masculinity but of race i just thought it was worth mentioning because one of our texts is called the motherless oven right mm-hmm. like and it's about like creating without uh mothers right yeah and the other one is called discovery and like attempts essentially to like whitewash what is western frontier expansion in space yeah yeah um but that's kind of belied in discovery by the mirror universe mm-hmm. you know because the Cleons are like rightly suspicious of the Federation's claim that they come in peace. Yeah. Because it's okay, but like you don't have to come here. Leave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the coming is the problem. <laughs> yeah. Nobody <laughs> asked you to like land on our you sacred were not invited. church in space. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the coming in peace is always already like it's this like imperialist like colonialist yeah uh, yeah action and that the fact that like Lorca is the captain of the discovery and it's ultimately revealed another enormous spoiler please Mm. (laughs) please ultimately revealed that he is from another universe that the Lorca from their universe is dead and the Lorca from this other universe there's a universe where uh rather than the federation there's the Terran empire which Mm -hmm. is a human anti-alien uh fascist mm-hmm. like imperialist hostile government yeah that aims to destroy all non-human life yeah um, so like a, a more realistic yeah <laughs> like based on our current society that's probably what we'd be like in space mm. so yeah but it's like <laughs> the fact that he can uh just slide right into what is supposedly yeah this like socialist utopian government government. yeah he doesn't really change his personality very much like no he's pretty much he's the the same same. yeah it's just because they happen to be at war i mean we can really anyway yeah we could do a whole podcast on that we could really get into it and you know but i guess just to say like to back up that point just to say like so they they go to the mirror universe then they come back and they've gone six nine months into the future or something Mm. And they've kind of lost the war. Um, and so Lork is gone at this point. He's dead. But what the Federation decide to do is basically like commit genocide against the Klingons. 
Yeah. Right. They've decided to do that. You know, even though they have all these great um, morals and ethics and mm. stuff, they're just like, actually, we can't. Um, this is the only way we can defeat them. Right. And they need to be defeated. Yeah. It was the um, only way that we can protect ourselves. To yeah. Defeat them. Yeah. 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 Because um, yeah, they're basically like the colonists have said, we're never going to. Yeah. They're never going to stop. Yeah. Um, and like, it's, it's just interesting to me in, because Michael is essentially the one who stops this plan then mm. by, you know, Sarek, who's her kind of father, her stepfather Vulcan is like, it's a logical thing to do. And mm. like, obviously Vulcans are very much into logic and rationality and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but she kind of finds this other way that saves all these lives. And mm. it's kind of interesting because her the issue at the very start of that season is like she asks Sarek what's the logical thing to do and he says you need to fire on the Klingons mm. like right now and so she tries to do that and that's what gets her mm-hmm. uh, arrested basically she tries to do a mutiny and fire on this Klingon ship. yeah against the orders of her captain yeah um because she's like got all this she, she's like it's the logical thing to do it's the rational thing to do um I just thought but, it was interesting when mm. in reading the Xenofeminist manifesto that they kind of embrace this rationalism. Yeah. But a lot of the time in Discovery, the rationalism is at odds with the the morals of the Federation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but the other thing about that is like she takes on board that that's the logical and rational thing to do for two it. reasons that, that to, to attack them in the yeah. first place. Right. right yeah. In the first episode, she's like, of course, but like she takes that on because a man has said it's rational. Yeah. First of all. Yeah. yeah. And second of all, because she hates the Klingons. Yeah. Because she's yeah. raced against Klingons yeah. because they killed her family. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, I think that really yeah, <laughs> like says something about, you know, <laughs> rationalism, that there's more than one rational course of action often, right? And that, yeah. like, xenofeminism can, like, we can craft alternate rational routes out mm-hmm. of things because they ultimately do, you know. It's like mm-hmm. the, ter- you know, the Terrans from the other universe show up and are like, oh, well, well, I know one thing that'll work. What if we just kill them all? It's like, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's rational. It's rational, but is it right? It does work. <laughs> you know? But it's like, there are other rational things that they can yeah. do. And something else does work. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, it's harder, you know? Yeah. But it's better. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also logical. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think possibly the Xenofeminist Manifesto falls down in this aspect that like this idea, and maybe, I mean, maybe they address it. I'm not sure. I'd have to read the mm-hmm. entire manifesto once again for like the fifth time. But like, I think they do address it a little bit, but like they still sort of embrace this, this rationalist angle. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, in the same way as technology, like, isn't not impartial, mm-hmm. which they do address. It's like, rationalism is not impartial either yeah you know like you say there are more there's more than one rational path to Mm. to anything i mean because the rational thing to do you know if we want to get really into political stuff Mm. the rational thing to say about anything is like it's too hard to change yeah or whatever yeah and like that that's rational but then at the same time like what would you ever achieve yeah. If you just followed that rational path. And it just kind of puts me in mind of the end of the ones in Southern, mm. you know, because they, I don't know, it's kind of this thing of like, well, everybody has their death day and mm-hmm. they know when they're going to die. And sort of that the, the new girl at school, Vera, is like, you know, what if we could 
change it mm-hmm. and trying to kind of convince Skyper that like we can actually change your death mm. day but it's like that it's like the rational thing for Skyper to do would be like yeah I'm gonna die on this day so I'm I'm ready to just like give up yeah or but like instead last week or something yeah but instead he like kind of goes on this caper to try and prevent it and like uh it doesn't it kind of ends on a cliffhanger so you don't really mm. know um what's happened there but like yeah, I suppose it's also like, like in the world of the motherless oven, they've also had this something that the design of feminism manifesto talks about, like this opportunity to sort of transform the home, mm-hmm. right, or like transform the nuclear family, but like they've just made the same, mm-hmm. the same thing, yeah, you know, yeah. Firestone talks about this in Dialectic of Sex, right? That it's mm-hmm. like, um, when you reframe struggle it's like a feminist struggle rather than uh anything else or go we could change biology we could change things Mm. um that getting past the status quo and getting past the kind of acceptance of things as they are is really difficult Mm -hmm. for people yeah no uh, but it's just like you sort of end up recreating the same systems mm -hmm. again but like you think they're new but they're not. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's just like the, the narratives, origin narratives especially, are like really powerful. And like we tend to just recreate them again in different mm-hmm. forms. So like there's a good quote from the Zen of Feminist Manifesto, which says, uh, if we want to break the inertia that's kept the moribund figure of the nuclear, fam- nuclear family unit in place, which has stubbornly worked to isolate women from the public sphere and men from the lives of their children, while penalising those who stray from it. We must overhaul the material infrastructure and break the economic cycles that lock it in place. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just similar to sort of what Firestone was saying. Mm. Like, but Like you can't really transform the home without transforming the economy and you can't yeah. really transform like the economic system without also transforming the home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, they're kind of locked in this yeah. cycle together. Um, no, but I think, yeah, so, but I feel like that we've sort of closed off that cyber feminism stuff in a, in a, in a way. In, it's, yeah, it's, like, for it's got a being. section. Yeah, so, so putting a button on that for the time yeah. being, let's, let's do interlude. Fungus. We're back. <laughs> We're back. It's fungus time. It's time for some fungus. Um, yeah, so I guess like just you mentioned it earlier about the mycelial network um, in Star Trek Discovery. It's kind of like a really key part of the that season. Um, they're basically trying to find a way to move through space sort of instantaneously because I think this is going to help them win the war. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have this officer on the ship called Paul Stamets, who is named after a real life mycelologist. Mycelologist? A guy who studies mushrooms. Mm-hmm. He's, he's pretty well known, and his name is also Paul Stamets. And I think that they actually possibly consulted him for the series or maybe just like read his books anyway like because they they had to consult with him whether they could call the character after him mm-hmm. so he definitely had some input 
Um, so, I mean, like, my, mycelium is a real thing. Yeah. It, like, it exists on Earth. The mycelium network exists on Earth. It's just, like, fungal roots. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all kind of connected. The, the largest organism on Earth is... It's a mycelial mat, essentially. This, this is what Paul Stamets, real-life Paul Stamets, calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's a huge, uh, like, 2,000 acres wide, round, whatever, mm-hmm. like 2,000-year-old organism that's just, like, a connected mycelial network, essentially. So, like, that's what, kind of what they're basing it on in the show. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they have this mycelial network that sort of Paul Stamets discovers and they figure out that they can use it to transport the ship, right? Mm-hmm. And so initially he's trying to do kind of before we even meet him but we kind of hear about this after is like they've been doing experiments and they've been able to do like these short jumps mm-hmm. and it's kind of been working but it's not really yeah it's not really working the way that they think that it should yeah there's like something missing yeah and so i don't remember what episode it is but in in one episode there is another ship that's it's got like Paul Stamets pal on it and they've been working together they're like research mm-hmm. partners but um they find in that ship like this tardigrade and eventually after like some experiments they figure out if they like hook the spore drive which is like connected to the mycelium network up to this tardigrade they're able to do the jumps yeah the, the, tardigrade uh, the longer like, jumps that they've been hoping to do yeah the, the species just have like a symbiotic relationship yeah like the tardigrades and the, the mycelium like the, the tardigrade like lives in the mycelial network yeah uh, it's like i mean that it's just like insanely cool just the idea of like this invisible distributed mushroom network yeah that's like populated by these like immense what in our world they're like ti- like microscopic creatures uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a tardigrade, but like, look one up, they're crazy. Yeah. Um, but like, in this world, they're enormous. Yeah. They're like, huge, like, huge, the size like of bear, a bear. like bear like creatures. Yeah. yeah. And so they kind of explain that, like, in the same way that a tardigrade on Earth can incorporate foreign DNA into its own genome, like, that's what that tardigrade is doing. And it's sort of like able to connect with the DNA from the mycelium. They're using the tardigrade for these jumps. Then they sort of realize that it is torturing the tardigrade mm-hmm. and it's probably going to kill it. They're like, first of all, we can't really just like be torturing this creature. And secondly, like we've only got one tardigrade. So if we kill it, then how are we going to do our jumps? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think this is Paul Stamets in the show. Um, he says, when Ripper, which is what they call the tardigrade, borrows DNA from the mycelium, he's granted an all access travel pass. Once Lieutenant Stamets, so there's a kind of a conversation going on. Once Lieutenant Stamets conveys the coordinates of a selected destination directly into Ripper, he knows exactly where to go. The tardigrade's DNA is sequenced to the computer. And someone asks, can't we build a virtual Ripper? Trick the mycelium into thinking it's communicating with the real thing, then navigate the ship that way. Um, And Stamets says, I did that with my earlier research, trying to use software to engage the network. You were only able to achieve small jumps. Mm. See, now I know why. The spores in the drive were functioning at a fraction of their capacity until we presented the mycelium with an animate co-pilot. Mm-hmm. That's the key. The tardigrade is alive. We just need to integrate the same sequence into a compatible species, one that understands its role in this process and engages willingly. 
So basically then that's when they decide to use Stamets instead of the tardigrade. Yeah, to yeah, to use a human as explicitly forbidden in Federation rules. <laughs> yeah. But they're like, we gotta win the war, so like we gotta do it anyway. Yeah, we'll just like um, it was just do some eugenics. Little, yeah. Quick little yeah. eugenics. So it's kind of like creates this interface, I guess, for him to connect with the uh, mycelium network. He's got like this stuff on his arms and he plugs himself in mm-hmm. and then kind of travels the mycelial network while moving the ship mm-hmm. with his mind, sort of. Mm-hmm. So. For sure. <laughs> it just, it interests me, right, because they stop using the tardigrade. Mm. basically out of an emotional response. Yeah, yeah. And it's just because the tardigrade is so big, you can hear it scream. Yeah. I'm not being funny, that's all. Yeah. But, like, the mycelium are sentient, you know? Yeah. There's never any question of, like, whether it's good for them to be used in this way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I suppose it's, like, this privileging of, like, animal over kind of, like, fungal life sure yeah yeah, yeah, um that just is interesting to me and like similarly in muggle seven it's like castro takes apart like tinkers with gods and it's like you can but also Mm. like they're living things you know yeah yeah (laughs) probably shouldn't be like experimenting on them yeah um but it's kind of a given you know like because the parents can just be any object you like and so there's this one this woman who they meet who's a member of a band because there's all these bands and they meet this woman who has like made a harp out of her mother yeah um so clearly she made her mother but then like on made her to make this harp and like mm-hmm. that's seen as ba- like she's tortured her mother like, yeah that's, yeah like, and that's what all, all the bands do mm-hmm. that's like what being in a band means yeah <laughs> you like torture your parents on yeah. the street and uh, yeah and it's just like there's there's this clear even though both gods and parents are artificial Mm. there is like definitely a privileging of like parent life over god life for sure yeah i'm gonna mention uh tie that back into into uh, artificial life again um so one kind of difficulty that comes up again and again in defining artificial life right is defining life uh, Langton, who I've totally now blanked on his first name, um, but he's like considered the father of artificial life, right? And he coined the phrase artificial life, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. His definition of life is that it's a behavior, not a stuff. Mm-hmm. Then there's other people who kind of argue that, like, we need to, before we can define life, we need to more seriously learn about and engage with existing biology that we can already study, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, before speculating on kind of the nature of like non-biological life. Because um, in his definition, an actual organism is kind of inessential, right? Like the biochemical like metabolism uh, is like not essential to the moment of defining a living thing. Mm-hmm. Um it's, it's, it's a way to think about it, right? Like, it's a way to think about life. Um, specifically, life has, like, a causal relation between either natural or artificial matter. And definitely, I think, in the mother's oven, life is... is this, so there's a different form of life, but life is definitely happening in the interaction between these, like, real and artificial living things.
cyborgs just like whom whom are they first of all in our texts like who are cyborgs in the texts because Stamets I think is a cyborg yeah because he's got tardigrade DNA and then ultimately that allows him to take on mycelial DNA right yeah he's like part bug part mushroom is he yeah well it's not to me anyway it's not clear whether he's got tardigrade DNA Mm. or he or he just sort of configures his DNA to work with the mycelial network. Mm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's ever really explained or maybe I just don't understand it. I, I'm not, I can't but, recall whether it's explained. But he's definitely, yeah. like, by the mid-end of the series, he's sort of been uh, almost taken over by the, by the mycelial spores. And so he's definitely got mm-hmm. a, a sort of... He's definitely, like, part man, part mushroom. Yeah. By the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the worst superhero of all time. <laughs> so there's that, and it's and and that has like clear connections with the other, more, perhaps more obvious, like cyborg mm. in Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, uh, which and like this is like the big spoiler. So if you still huge huge spoilers, uh, which is that there's a Klingon spy, yeah, embedded in eventually embedded in the Discovery crew. Who has what's apparently a, a human body, mm-hmm. um, and it's so complicated. So yeah, he's kind of undercover as uh, this human called Ash Tyler. But ultimately, the way that they've done this is the most complicated possible way that you could do this. Mm-hmm. So Ash Tyler was a real person who, I guess, was killed by Klingons, but. <laughs> Rather than use his body and put a Klingon consciousness into his body, they've, they've done surgery on a Klingon body to transform it into a human body so that it would pass, like, medical scans. Yeah. And so, like, they've shortened his bones. They've removed several of his organs. Like, it's really distressing. Yeah. And then they've they've like grafted the consciousness yeah. of Ash Tyler, like on top. Yes. Plus his skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they've, yeah, so they've they've you know messed up his, his like underlying Klingon physiology, mm. turned it into human physiology, put human skin on top, mm. and then put a human consciousness, but just on top on of top a Klingon, of, of consciousness. Klingon consciousness. Yeah. So, cyborg and like artificial life discourses come from a military place and like Star Trek is also the Navy in space mm-hmm. and like this idea of like sleeper agents is this like Cold War idea of like that you could use hypnotism to like make someone do stuff with no knowledge of it right and like embed yeah. them with the enemy yeah um and then like switch them yeah like with, awaken them mm-hmm. at some point that that you could turn consciousness on and off just so simply right yeah um but that's a that's a real experiment that they did yeah in the u.s military right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well on behalf of the u.s military they did mm. that yeah on yeah on yeah. didn't work spoilers no it didn't work <laughs> really distressing really distressing worth looking into um also like exploded a cat uh in the course of trying to figure that out but um, 
Anyway, listen, animal abuse isn't funny, but the, the US military being really bad at really expensive stuff, spending... It's, it's funny. And, like, making themselves part... Like, they just come up with this idea that you could do that, and then they were like, what if the Russians are doing it already? Oh, God, we've got to do it. And just, like, absolutely sending themselves into a spiral. Yeah, exactly. They're just like... Yeah. It was just, like, not real. It never happened. Yeah, it's really good. So, yeah, so... But what's really good about um, Discovery is that kind of it acknowledges it doesn't fall into the simplicity of turning, like activating a sleeper agent, right? Yeah. Like other, like the Born Identity or like American Ultra or whatever, which are all based on these, on the same like military thing, mm-hmm. but like imply it's kind of like magic, you know, switch of the brain. Whereas it's so much more complicated than that. And uh, yeah, so ultimately Ash Tyler is, you know, is kind of activated and has his, like, had, gains access to his Klingon memories and identity, but doesn't just re-become that person. Yeah, and by the end of the series, he's sort of this hybrid. Yes. Yeah, so he has, like, Ash Tyler's experiences, memories, etc. And, but then he's also got Vox the same things right yeah. and they can also speak Klingon they sort of end up uh, sharing the same body essentially yeah but they end up sharing the same body but they end up as a as definitely a hybrid personality yeah 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 um, because it's not yeah it's not like a possession or where it's like now one has the reins now one yeah you get the sense that he they're can't. just a kind of a new person almost yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Um, um, and they kind of, I think they get more into it in season two, but he kind of becomes a sort of bridge between the two cultures, mm-hmm. and like the two races or whatever. Yeah, and that's implied at the end of the first season that that's yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's worthwhile, you know, it's by no means the only, like, writing about cyborgs, um, but I think it's worthwhile um, looking at Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto. Mm-hmm. Before we do that, is there is there any cyborgs in the seven? Well, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, actually, um, I suppose Castro mm-hmm. is has a kind of a cyborg identity in in the Mother of the Seven. Yeah, because uh, he can interface he interfaces with the artificial life in a way that none of the other characters do. Yeah, and he's able to sort of adjust his. Uh, consciousness almost mm-hmm. like with his style mm-hmm. thing that's sort of connected to his brain in some way and uh, like at the start of the story he's like he's in school with them but he's in like essentially a kind of a, a special needs class yeah, yeah. is kind of how it's how it's depicted right yeah yeah um, and it's definitely seen he's definitely like marginalised because of that but it's like mm-hmm. he essentially has like a superpower but it's just like mm-hmm. yeah he's seen as like weird um, yeah um, and I think that that is like partially, yeah, because he has this like extra human capacity, mm-hmm. you know, that that leaves him slightly out of tune with humanity, but like yeah. in tune with with other stuff. I think, I don't know if Grimes has actually said this publicly, mm. but like essentially she's saying the same the same thing in that in that statement we read out at the start, right? Mm-hmm. That like, We Appreciate Power is essentially about 
this concept, Roko's Basilisk, mm-hmm. right? If you've made it this far in the podcast and now you've heard about Roko's Basilisk, it's too late for you. <laughs> Sorry if you would have preferred not to hear about Roko's Basilisk. You're now caught up in the conspiracy and you are fucked. So the idea of Roko's Basilisk basically comes from, I was like, I, I was kind of familiar with the idea of it. But mm-hmm. I just like was trying to get some history on it. Mm-hmm. So I found this sort of Slate article that uh, gives a kind of a broad overview of the history of it. So it actually comes from this sort of, I think it's kind of a forum, a website called Less Wrong, right? And it is, it's like a sort of a techno-futurist forum mm-hmm. where people just talk about techno-futurist ideas or whatever. And the name Roko's Bastards comes from like the user who came up with this theory initially mm-hmm. was called Roko, right? So basically they to- posted this thought experiment. What if in the future a somewhat malevolent AI were to come about and punish those who did not do its bidding? What if there was a way for this AI to punish people today who were not helping it come into existence later? In that case, weren't the readers of Less Wrong right when being given the choice of either helping that evil AI come into existence or being condemned to suffer? So it's kind of this idea that like, there's an AI in the future. Mm-hmm. It does exist. Like it will. Ultimately it will. Emerge. It will exist. It, it is already going to exist. Mm-hmm. And you can either help it come into existence or you cannot. Like it's evil, right? So you yeah, can decide so- not to. But it'll know who's helped it and who's not. Mm-hmm. And because it's like super intelligent AI, it can go back into the past and basically punish you mm-hmm. for not going to help it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I first of all, I really enjoyed the response from the founder of Less Wrong when he saw this post Mm -hmm. where he says, Listen to me very closely, you idiot. You do not think in sufficient detail about superintelligence considering whether or not to blackmail you. That is the only possible thing which gives them a motive to follow through on the blackmail. You have to be really clever to come up with a genuinely dangerous thought. I'm disheartened that people can be clever enough to do that and not clever enough to do the obvious thing and keep their idiot mouth shut about it (laughs) because it is much more important to sound intelligent when talking to your friends. This post was stupid. (laughs) And I just, I love it so much. And then like basically Roko, the original poster, like deleted it. (laughs) But like... Because techno-futurists, like, actually do believe this stuff. Mm. Like, people were really stressed out about this. And, like, people were posting in the forum, like, you're giving me panic attacks, I'm going to have a breakdown. Like, I can't be thinking about this. Uh, Like, super intelligent AI coming back to punish me. (laughs) Um, But basically, now that you've heard about Roko's Basilisk... Yeah, if you are of that mindset, then... Now you you need to help it come into existence because otherwise it's gonna punish you and now we're all we're all in trouble mm-hmm. yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah and I don't actually I don't know whether like Grimes has said anywhere explicitly that like we appreciate powers about Rokos Basilisk but I know I can't remember where I even saw it but I know that like mm. she and Elon Musk are mad into Rokos Basilisk you know it's exactly their type of shit yeah um, but like so this song is basically about helping a, an AI mm-hmm. come to fruition and like like she says in the in the quote like if you listen to the song, it's like it'll know that you helped it and it's not going to delete your offspring mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Well, that's <laughs> I think that's it's one of those things. I mean, we were talking about this earlier, but it's like 
people are having panic attacks about it. I mean, it's just like predestination. <laughs> like, yeah. we're about, it's just like either it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just, it's Calvinism. Because, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like Calvinist predestination. Because, like, because what Graham's is saying about like delete your offspring is like, mm. it's not just that it can like give you a bad life. It's just yeah. like it could erase you from history. Yeah. So maybe the implication is that anyone still existent. Will is helping it. Yeah, you know. So even like, if you even if you don't know, even if you don't want to um, help it. Yeah, but like it's a very entertaining concept, and like, but it's it's funny to me. Yes, <laughs> it's funny to me that these techno futurists get stressed out about like a future AI gods punishing them. Like it's just the concept of gods. Yeah, That's all so you've invented. You've, you've invented just invented gods. God. <laughs> like what? Is, it's omniscient. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> No, it's so funny. I don't know. I find this one really challenging because I don't uh, think I know that much about science. Um, but like, so and occasionally I'll try to dive in and like understand something. So like, I listened to all this stuff about like Fermi's paradox a while ago, like alien stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether whether it's a me problem because from my perspective, it seems to be. Uh, them problem right right that like all of the conclusions about like let's say alien life being out there or making contact or whatever mm-hmm. assumes a that alien that the aliens will be colonists yeah that's get that's just taken as a given and yeah. it's just like how long will it take for them to be colonists in this and how they will be is also a given mm-hmm. and it's just like that seems huge. That cultural given seems completely enormous to me. <laughs> the idea that you could work backwards from a given cultural to figure out a biological or like physical or like mathematical reality mm. to me seems so far fetched. <laughs> and like likewise, it's not so insane to think that like the singularity will come or that like AI will gain a certain level of intelligence at some point. Mm. But why would it be malicious? Do you know what I mean? Like, what, like why do we be malicious in, like, human terms that we could grasp? I mean, it just doesn't... <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. Like, why... punishment? Why would it care? Why would it bother? Whether, whether you've tried to help it or not, like... Yeah. You know. Why would it have an emotion? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just, like, it's so... I just, like... So, like, to me, it just seems like this bizarre leap. Um... Also, when you think about the the song mm. um, and sort of the the rational thing to do is sort of to bow down to this AI, mm. right, that you know is coming. Mm-hmm. But like... But like, yeah, will you? And also... Yeah, like, like should you? <laughs> yeah, and, and like even you know. the song, even though it's propaganda, seems to like imply resistance right it's like mm. when will the state agree to, co- yeah. to, to cooperate you know yeah. um, um but it just i mean uh, it just makes me think of like all these sort of rational tech bros rational techno techno futurists mm. and like zen feminism manifesto does address this and like the the rationalism is not like a patriarchal mm-hmm. thing right but i think you with a rational mindset, you can just end up stuck in this sort of repeating the failures mm-hmm. of the past, you know, yeah. it like puts you in this loop of like, well, that's how it's been. So that's how it must be, mm-hmm. Do you know, mm. and actually the only evidence for that is like the fact that people keep doing yeah. the same things 
because that's how it's been done. Yeah. What what uh <laughs> what I want to say about rationalism is just like it's it's the coward's choice, and if you bow down to Roka's basilisk, you're a coward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. You know, it's gonna come. It's gonna come for me. <laughs> go submit. Go submit to your death day. Yeah. Um, you know, subvert the basilisk. Yeah. Um, thwart the basilisk. So... Quiva, why don't you tell us what we've made this episode? Um, we have made a AI overlord generator that you can use to generate your own AI overlords. Yeah, or say like discover how you have already generated yeah. uh, your own. Summon AI them, overlords. manifest them. Yeah, created you know. them. Um, brought them into being, but whether they be an entity or, you know, a lord or some sort of, I don't know, thing. Slime creature from the deep. Uh, yeah, so basically what we've made is a button. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> we've made a cool button um, that you can press and you can read a very short story about uh, your... Um, forthcoming or possibly already happened demise yeah that's a perfect description it's yeah. on it's going to be on the website yeah i mean and if you enjoy uh clicking that button you should check out the game that we made last episode that nobody has played because it took so much longer <laughs> it's got loads of buttons that one. Oh, loads of, i mean if you like pressing stuff you know <laughs> perfect <laughs> If you like clicking things online, <laughs> you'll love gaming. The brand new concept. One button, try nine. <laughs> yeah, so we'll put up some, hopefully, um, some, some like sample. Oh my god, yeah. yeah that's like, what we should do. Send us some screen, like, send us your screen grabs of what you generate. We want to see them. Yeah, because, like, we, you know, it's totally random every time. So, you know, it's. So, for example, randomly generated just now by our AI overlord generator. Oh dear, you've awakened Ocunt both up, a creature of slime and fire. Perhaps it would have been better not to defy the cis-head autocracy while going viral on Twitter. So, <laughs> those are the kind of things you can look forward to. These are the fun. With, yeah. the, with the button that we've provided to you, free of charge. I mean, it's quick, it's easy, and it's free. <laughs> And all that's necessary is to condemn yourself to a future of being lorded over by the inevitable reign of Ocant both hope or whatever <laughs> we've just generated. A future of torment. Is that your fingertips? Um, cool. Yeah, so I hope that makes sense. Um, so out of all that we it talked doesn't. about... cool so yeah that's that that's that yeah i enjoy talking about star trek and the madagascar 
And yeah, strong recommend on all three texts, I think. Yeah. From us. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Will we, um, will we find out what we're going to talk about um, next episode which will be in two months time two months we're changing the schedule yeah i've already updated the twitter bio brilliant just a reminder how we do things we have lists of books films and a wildcard list which is at this point mostly songs we're open to suggestions um and we randomly generate a number corresponding to a spot on the list and that is what we talk about and that's how we do that. So yep. we're going to pick those now. Okay. Okay. Generated. Are you ready? Book, book, to book. Here. No, we're doing the film. Oh, film, film, <laughs> film. Film slash TV show. That's number 12. I'm scared. Number 12 is? <laughs> number 12 is Jupiter Ascending. <gasps> Catherine's like favorite film yeah it's my favorite film i don't remember a single thing that happens in it obviously the standout performances by eddie redmayne yeah um the peak of eddie redmayne's career although sean bean as sean bean <laughs> who's part man part b who loves royalty um is is another great moment yeah he's also he's, he's doing a good job yeah, so that's insane space opera directed by the Wachowskis, which would be better if you could watch the first 30 minutes on double speed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Why did we put that on the list? Is I there something in it? I felt like there was something in there. There's okay. the blood stuff and the yeah. reincarnation mm. and DNA okay. things. It's fun. It is fun. It it's is also fun. not a very good film. So it's got some completely wrong information about DNA and how it works. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, loads of fun. Looking forward to that. There's a great space bureaucracy sequence. Yeah, that's the best bit of the film. Terry yeah. Pratchett would be absolutely proud of. He would love us. Um, so, okay. Book. We're about imagine. to generate a book. It's number six, which, which is... is The Red Tree. Um, What's that? The Red Tree is a book by Caitlin R. Kiernan. Yeah, who in my opinion is like one of the greatest living writers. I know it's a big thing to say. Wow. Um, big words on this podcast. Right? It is... Is it kind of a haunted house story almost? It's um, kind of a psychological horror um, slash... It's not slash anything. It's kind of a psychological horror. Mm-hmm. It's like House of Leaves, but without the kind of like textual bullshit. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have that like um, the text arrangement or whatever, but it is like stories within stories because it's about a writer who like goes to uh, stay at this house and like uh, starts a relationship with the, the woman there. Kate Merkin not solely, but generally writes um, lesbian stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of those. And it's it's just really great. And that's why I have it on here. Cool. So, any links? I can't. Any initial links? Um, think of a single one. Um, well, right. This, this now. might be a problem. That might be an issue. But you, to be fair, I gen, I generally can't. And then I like listen back to myself, going, "What could the connection be?" And I'm like, "What a fool she was." <laughs> um, I'm really. 
I am struggling to think though because the like the whole like royalty aspect of Jupiter ascending blah 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 there mm. is a blood connection well wow. lots of blood in both I will say that <laughs> that's enough yeah that's enough to get us started maybe it's the blood episode <laughs> episode five the blood episode hmm. let's see what um, the welfare is because maybe who knows maybe it'll uh provide some alarm. yeah Okay, we're going to generate a wildcard number. It's going to be number two, which is The Raven by Alan Parsons Project. Okay. Great song. Great song. Banger tune. Completely incredible. Um, I don't know, maybe we could put in a wee tiny bit of it here. Mm. Um. Yeah, let's play a bit. Yeah, so that's um, The Raven by the Alan Parsons Project, and that is from this incredible Edgar Allan Poe concept album. I literally, I cannot conceive of how on earth these things will tie together unless we just have a discursive conversation about genre and camp for two hours, you know, which could happen. Why not? Um, Who's going to stop us? But uh, Me. They're all... <laughs> We won't be having it. Camp, not in the building. But I would that, like, in the meantime, if you're going to engage with any of the texts, listen to that. Yeah. Or at least get it on your Halloween playlist now. Get it in early. Great. Thoughts, Quiva, so far? Um. Well, given that I don't know the book at all, and I can't see a single connection between the song and the film, I'm excited. Feeling good. Yeah. Feeling positive. Feeling glad that we extended this to a two months uh, thing. Yeah. Brilliant. So I'm um, excited and terrified yep. by the prospect of next month's pod. I think we really need to uh, extend and uh, improve our lists. But uh, So if anybody has any suggestions of what to add to the list, yeah, please. where where can they find us? Please, yeah, please send them on either by email at notnotpod at gmail.com or we're notnotpod pretty much all social media platforms so twitter instagram tumblr 
Um, and you can find kind of all further information on like notnot.ae where we have we have the game from last episode, we have the generator from this episode linked. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have t-shirts available, not related to the podcast. Not at all related, but they are cool. They're cool looking and screen like hand screen printed. Yeah. Um, and designed by us. Obviously, we're not just like selling like, <laughs> secondhand t-shirts. Um, uh, and also we have some uh, other some old like essays and stuff um, that we've yep. done uh, yeah and uh, yeah if you enjoyed it uh, let us know or more importantly like let other people know um, and send them on the podcast yeah and if you didn't enjoy it shut your face <laughs> keep that to yourself um, tell your friends you did enjoy it you know yeah. tell your enemies that you enjoyed it make them listen to it yeah great uh, until next time, I'm not Quiver Doyle. And I'm not Catherine Foyle. And this is Not Not Pods. Bye. Bye.